Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 11, our discussion on some of the key trends of Nashville on the first part of 2023. The episode itself strayed from the original premise to become a fascinating look at the emerging tension between the rapid development of drug and diagnostics versus sociopolitical behavior that does not adequately address the underlying sources of metabolic disease. What emerged was a fascinating, complex session. Then from the vault, we have conversation 28.4 from season three, and we see Stephen Harrison, Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, and I discuss how the drug development landscape looked and felt a mere nine months ago. In this conversation, I pick up where Jeff left off and discuss the practical implications of our food choices and advertising. I cite a recent Lancet report from the Search study, which shows an annual 5.3% increase in prevalence of type 2 diabetes in 10 to 19-year-olds from 2000 to 2018, and suggests that a mix of food insufficiency and the rise of fast food marketing might be a major source of this problem. Louise comments on how this influences the public perspective of type 2 diabetes in family history, and your answer that as he's supposed to genes are one thing, but passing behavior influenced by education is a critical socioeconomic factor to consider. In closing, Jeff inserts an anecdote around the idea that a critical predictor of whether a child is going to be obese is whether the parents are overweight or obese themselves. One key point emerging from this episode is that the effects of the fatty liver pandemic will be with us far after we have begun to implement new drug and lifestyle interventions and better diagnostic testing. This is a huge issue with dramatic, far-reaching implications for health systems around the world. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Because timing is everything. Last week, we talked about pediatric and adolescent NASH. That episode dropped on March 1st, actually, but we finished posting it on the 27th. On February 28th, Lancet posted online a paper from a group in the U.S. looking at the search for diabetes in youth trial that suggested that in five randomly located centers from 2000 to 2018, the annual growth in the I forget if it was incidence of prevalence of type 2 diabetes among 10 to 19-year-olds in the U.S. was 5% a year, which is just huge. Now, the growth there's growth in type 1, which is about 2%, but a 5% growth is, is astonishing. Interestingly enough, it seasonally peaks in August. I'm guessing that's because people eat more bad food during the summer when they're uh, not in school and on vacation and eat more ice cream and stuff than they do during the rest of the year. That's just my guess. But And it's diabetes, right? Again. So if we don't believe that obesity and NASH are related, we might decide that diabetes is a third cousin twice removed. Who cares? But the reality is we all should care, that these are all concomitant medical conditions. They're all fellow travelers. And the idea that as our diets have gotten worse and more heavily sugar-laden over the last 20 years, adolescent and childhood diabetes rates are showing that. And then the food industry is coming back and saying, oh, it's a free speech issue. We should be able to call anything we want healthy. That's really devastating. Louise Campbell. I think it's also a concern from a different angle on that, is that when it becomes generation after generation who've got type 2 diabetes, somebody asked me yesterday, why somebody didn't respond to being told they were pre-diabetic. It's because you believe it's in your family. You believe it is a natural consequence because your mother, your grandmother, grandfather had it. We now know a little bit more that it's probably more genetics and that you are probably more likely to have it. You have a liver at risk. So depending and, and feeding into that, literally to use the word, this frightening aspect of children with diabetes, it'd be interesting to see how many of their parents and grandparents had it because people just then write it off as it was going to happen it's just younger so we remove ourselves from the context and I think it takes me back to an episode you guys did after AAS 
SLD, where you were talking about this whole genetic aspect and people believing. And it aligned with that for me really, really well. So it, it is... It is frightening. Jörn Schattenberg. Sorry, in that context, Louise, something I'm always thinking of is also, and I know that must be something Jeff thought about, it's also about social class and, and learned behavior, right? Genes is one thing, but you pass behavior along your family. And um, of course, uh, you're influenced by uh, the education of your parents uh, that potentially potentiates. Are you growing up in a neighborhood where you learn to exercise and, and play in the green parks or are you indoor playing video games potentially? I mean, these aspects are closely interrelated with genetics. Jeff Mad- McIntyre. Yeah, absolutely. Yorn, I would agree on that too. And, you know, from my years in working in childhood obesity, the biggest single predictor of whether a child is going to be obese is whether the parents are overweight or obese. And so that doesn't necessarily answer the question about genetic or social, but in fact, I think it actually confounds it. And so we see that there is social and behavioral stuff that plays into that. There's environmental that plays into that. But if we have had learned notions of the generational passing of different things, in our world today. I, I first engaged in, we talked about generational uh, trauma being passed through folks, but also, you know, when we see these sort of inherited disease states, they can also be passed. And whether something that is social and behavioral then becomes genetic as a, t- as a disposition is easy to happen in that regard. And especially if the people are surrounded by unhealthy social conditions. And when we look at at risk, that's the population that we're talking about. This isn't the group with personal trainers and Pilates. This is a group that is high risk, that is in not the best case scenarios and certainly are dealing with difficulties in terms of access or even understanding the importance of nutrition and physical activity as it relates to this. And now with this potential FDA ruling, that understanding could be even that much more, you know, uh, problematic. A couple thoughts. Uh, first of all, microbiome is kind of the ultimate intervener in all this, isn't it? Every time I have a family member or friend explain to me that the reason their kid is heavy is because it's in the genes. I ask them how much soda consumption is in the genes. It's literally my first question. And we're not talking about diet sodas either, although we could be because those have their own problems. So the first 15 minutes of this conversation was about all the exciting things that are happening in the science, and they're all positives. And there's this huge dynamic that I'm hearing in this conversation between very exciting, but frankly expensive science and really scary, particularly in the States, public policy. If selling your sugar cereal is healthy is a free speech right, then who's going to educate the undereducated or the underinformed on what really is or isn't healthy? You know, hey, I'm taking care of my kid. I have a reading series that says healthy, right? here on the label, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that is interesting to note that when you dive into like the recommended daily allowance of uh, nutrition for the American food labels, in 2020, the FDA actually came out and said, yeah, that doesn't really apply if you have chronic disease because we know there's so much individualization with individual chronic disease. And so if you then compare that with the number of uh, Americans that are, say, metabolically unhealthy in some way, whether it's cardiovascular disease, whether it's obesity, or something like that, then that means that your recommended daily allowances of nutrition, as is defined by the FDA, really only applies to like 12 to 15 percent of the American population in that regard. And so that is troubling. I think the the, the good part of this, that's we're kind of grasping at straws a little bit when we talk food politics in this way, is that in our signing on with the medicalization of obesity and talking with these groups like the AMA and the Obesity Society and Stop Obesity that are doing just really freaking great work in this area, is that 
there is becoming more of a symbiotic acknowledgement of the importance of the liver and of what's going on and its importance and its priority within metabolic health. We're so often knocking at the door of obesity and diabetes, trying to get included in the conversation. But now the numbers are rising in such a rate and becoming such an issue that I think those on the obesity side are seeing this as a real emergency that they have to reach out to now to see as a end result disease that is impacting their populations as well. And I would cite, you know, in food politics, certainly a lot of people know Michael Pollan, and he's written some really great books like The Omnivore's Dilemma, for instance. And he had this sort of six word uh, phrase that he would turn around to people, which was, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And that was kind of your, your idea of what you go through with that. And that was contrasted with another obesity expert, Robert Lustig, who is out from California. And he said that he and Poland are great colleagues and work together and agree on a lot of things. But he wanted to tweak that a little bit, tweak eat food, not too much, mostly plants, to a different six words, which was protect the liver, feed the gut. And I think that that is the the premise by which we will be going forward with in liver health is protect the liver, feed the gut or the microbiome as you talk about it as well. And that that's going to be the way that we go forward uh, for a healthy metabolism. Okay. Who's making the t-shirt? <laughs> Jeff Lazarus, probably because he gave Majorne uh, uh, his Nash t-shirt last year. I was going to say, I want one too. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send me an email at questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to discuss the ICER draft guidance on pricing for esmeterom or butacolic acid, an important issue and one where you're invited to join us through audience participation. Send a note to questions at surfingnash.com if you want to request an invitation for the live recording Monday, March 13th at 2 o'clock. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.